Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, friends. Trey here. Um, welcome to a very, very special episode of the Mosaic Life podcast. For a long time, uh, since Ernie and I first envisioned um, where or what life uh, this this show would take on, uh, my dream has been to build it into an interview type show. Uh, we always had three components to it, uh, the conversations, the meditations, and now finally, I'm excited to announce uh, the interviews are coming about and uh, I'm thrilled. I've in essence grown up if you will, uh, to the Tim Ferriss's, Joe Rogan's, Kevin Rose's of the world, um, just listening to their their interview styles and and seeing how they differ from the media of the past. And I have longed to become a fine interviewer myself. And so uh, this was our first chance at uh, entering that realm. And, and I, it went really, really well. At least I, I know I'm biased, but uh, I thought it was a very good interview. Uh, we chatted with uh, Lisa Bond. Um, she is an RN, a coach, and uh, she's intensively trained in DBT. Um, and that's a, that's a type of therapy as dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, I was turned on to her by a mutual friend and uh, we've had many conversations leading up to this and it's just it was it was truly a wonderful wonderful opportunity for Ernie and I to chat with somebody who helps others overcome mental hurdles in their lives using uh, the foundation of um, mindfulness. We talk a little bit about how to deal with uh, the holiday stresses. We talk about how to deal with uh, stress in family, stress in, in a co-working environment, and much, much more. Um, I'm excited uh, for you to dig into this, and uh, we obviously welcome any feedback you might have or any suggestions as to who you'd like to hear us interview next. Um, uh, she's located here in uh, Columbus. Uh, she's part of the Columbus Counseling Group, um, and she works with people on the skills practice and training as well as coaching. Uh, but without further ado, I introduce you to Lisa Bond. Welcome to the Mosaic Life Podcast. Life is an art. Every moment a picture painted in time. The color, texture, lighting, all context. The Mosaic Life vision is to cast a warm glow on your masterpiece, highlighting the struggle while showcasing the culmination of years of hard work. Join us for guided meditations, interviews with authors and leaders, and engaging conversation as we explore the depths of our consciousness. We are live, so Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, how, how's everything going for you? Well, it's a busy time of year, though, the holidays. Um, are tough for yeah. people, even even under the best circumstances, right? Um, so I'm starting to see some of that angst and, and stress come up. Certainly. Do you feel any of it yourself? Yeah, a little bit. We're planning on going um, out of town for the first time. The family will meet at a Airbnb uh, out in western Pennsylvania uh, with the, the illusion that this will make everything way more simple. Um, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Isn't that always the idea? You go on vacation to relax, but you just end up stressing more about it than you would in actuality? Exactly. And it's new, right? New things are always um, a little bit more stressful. And there's an excitement that I can't help but feeling. Oh, good. 
Good. Well, again, thank you for joining us, Ernie. Thank you for, for joining us. This is our first interview. Uh, uh, Lisa Bond, uh, again, thank you for being here, both of you. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely excited to have you. And with the holiday season here and the angst and the stress that you mentioned that comes up for people, it definitely seems like a good uh, good time for us to be talking. I mean, a lot of people are getting together with their families and who knows what challenging uh histories that are maybe being un- not being addressed in their uh, in their families and then also people spending money on things or feeling the need to spend more money than they want to on things and that brings up so much and then of course the food that we eat during the holiday season that's not always helpful to our system and and sometimes brings brings up shame or guilt so i imagine this is a this is a time of year where you are really um experiencing that from from your work and, and and it's what you do to help people get through this you know on a day-to-day basis yeah, when people are you know everybody is stressed at this time of year and when when a person is kind of is wired a little bit differently and they're even more sensitive to their emotional experiences than um let's say the norm or the, the greater population what i'm experiencing on any given day is magnified by as much as 10 for that individual and yet most of the time their their support, their environment, their culture are unaware because it doesn't exist, right, in, in the lives of, of most of us. So the experience of people who are extremely sensitive to their emotions is very different. Um, and it can lead to really dangerous situations and certainly disruptions in family attachments and um, relationship difficulties. Certainly. And so as we kind of get into that, and I have many questions in regard to utilizing the tools that you offer, but uh, for the the, uh, the folks, uh, you are a dialectic behavioral therapist. Um, and, you know, you've got, uh, you certainly got a, a dictionary definition that we can, we can roll off the tongue, but uh, I, 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 your unique, you know, value proposition, you know, if, if somebody is finding themselves in, in a darker place uh, this holiday season, what, what tools do you offer uh, unique uh, to yourself and in your industry that help people get through some of these tough times? First of all, let me clarify that um, I am not a licensed therapist. I'm intensively trained in DBT therapy, okay, okay? Um, dialectical behavior therapy. I'm a nurse um, and a coach. So when a client needs comprehensive DBT therapy, I'm associated with a practice here in town called Columbus um, Counseling Group, and we share clients' um, within that realm so that if a person needs comprehensive therapy, um, there are a number of people I can set them up with. The people that I work with only need skills, practice, and training and coaching. Mm. So given that, um, there are a number of skill sets within DBT that are effective um, alone without, um, without therapy, and oftentimes therapy as usual is enough. Um, certainly the ones for tolerating distress and regulating emotions are critical for this time of year. We have skills to use in a crisis, and we have skills to use over time, but they're all predicated on mindfulness, right? To really be able to use these these skills effectively, one has to be able to intentionally choose what to pay attention to in any given moment. 
bring what's happening right now and to do that without judgment. That's difficult on a good day, let alone in the middle of, you know, the whole family and all the emotional energy that's flying around. Oftentimes, step number one is to notice before it hits that you're starting to get overwhelmed and gently remove yourself from the situation for as long as you need. A cope-ahead plan to let people know that you're going to be doing that um, is even better. Certainly. And, you know, Lisa, as, as you and I continued our conversations, uh, we met a, a couple months ago. Mindfulness is uh, was the key word that, that drew in my interest and, and certainly Ernie's interest as well. And so when you speak about coping ahead and, you know, maintaining mindfulness, especially when you're used to being, you know, uh, rather, at least for myself, you know, rather introverted, you know, being around uh, a handful of people throughout your day, and you get thrown into an entire family situation, do you, how do you recommend uh, coping with that? Or do would you put a plan of action together ahead of time? How do you maintain that mindfulness? Um, Well, knowing that it's, I guess, knowing that it's central to regulating emotions, the only goal that we would have is to get through the crisis without making things worse, right? Um, So it doesn't have to be perfection, and you don't have to be able to go and sit on a cushion in that moment. Coping ahead or creating um, a plan means being mindfully aware of when your distress starts to rise, being aware of where you hit a skills breakdown point where you can no longer be effective, and then communicating to other people what they can expect from you when that happens, how they might notice that it's happening in case you're missing it, and letting them know ahead of time that you are going to quietly, gently remove yourself temporarily until you can get back into balance. That that ability to to back, I guess I'm going to say, and just notice what's happening is going to help us not get caught up in um, out-of-control emotions. That idea. Being mindful. Yeah. Did okay, you have more? being mindful of thoughts, feelings, physical sensations, and action urges, which are kind of flying around inside our body and inside our mind 24-7, and then choosing which ones to attend to is a lot of work. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those action urges, man, that word, I've never heard it put that way, but it's like the energy rises in you and... and at a at a fundamental level, you know, as I for myself and I assume other people, as we grow up, um, those urges are just things that we act upon. Especially as children, we just, you know, if we feel an urge, there is a, a pushing of that energy out into the world, and there's really no filter there. Um, it, and the idea of of coping ahead, what I hear you saying is that you're you're looking at what your life is going to be in the next you know, few hours and the things that you're putting yourself into, whether it's going to work or going to be with family or going to the gym and, and realizing the things that could happen and being prepared for that in some way. Is that what you're saying? Right. Exactly. It's preparing to be intentional in every moment, right? Um, So that we don't have to act and react out of habit or, or fear or, you know, rapidly changing, fluctuating emotion states. Now, you, you said a word that I've been reflecting on quite a bit recently, and that's reacting. Um, and I, I have 
through reading, learn to distinguish the difference between responding versus reacting. And to me, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, a reaction would be if you put, you're put in that situation and you feel yourself, um, circling, you know, into a downward, downward spiral out of anxiety or fear. Whereas responding is you have a plan in place. Whereas if, if you start to feel that way, you know what the uh, escape route is. I mean, you know, to excuse yourself, you know, to uh, find a little bit of solace for five or 10 minutes. Um, do you, in, in your practice, I mean, do you, what is it, do you distinguish between reacting versus responding, um, responding, equaling planning, reacting versus, you know, off the cuff, um, uh, feelings that you feel like you need to express? Absolutely. Um, It's the difference between surfing the wave, right, riding on top of it all the the way to the shore and getting, having the waves slam you down into the sand. Um, When I'm deliberate in noticing that that emotion is starting to fire, I can intentionally step back and observe the emotion, what it feels like in my body, what my action urge is. Do I want to defend myself? Do I want to give an opinion? Do I want to run? Do I want to um, go to bed and pull the covers up over my head? Whatever it may be, maybe eat a lot of foods that are not healthy for me. Um, I can observe that, know that it's going to be time limited, and give myself permission to do what I have to do to take care of myself while I ride the wave. And then when that wave is passed, can come back and continue to be effective in whatever the environment environment was that that triggered the the uh, wave of emotion in the first place. I noticed last night for myself, my husband and I were having a um, heated argument about something, and I noticed I was aware that we were getting into a, a tug of war, and I had to really it took some energy. I had to take a breath, step back, think, stop in my head drop the rope and give myself permission. I said, you know what? I'm going to step away. This isn't going to end well. I'm getting too aroused. I'm going to go take some time out and we'll come back to this um, when we're both at a better place. And in fact, that may not be until tomorrow. I don't know. It'll be, it will be when it will be. It just is. It wasn't then. And that was the effective thing to do. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, I commend you. That can be extremely difficult and, and I found in my own life uh, with uh, in a marriage and with two children that uh, one of the most effective ways um, that I have of, of stopping uh, what could be a, a domino effect of just terrible things being said or interactions that I will regret is sometimes to simply just plant my feet or, or get down on my knees and just sit and not move. Like there have been moments in my life where just the frustration and, and that comes with being a parent and then, you know, this feeling of wanting to control it, knowing that I don't need to control it and this inner, you know, dialogue happening of how it's supposed to happen. And then hopefully I can grab some sort of reins and, and be like, oh, my gosh, dude, I am I am stuck in it right now. And then sometimes in that point, even leaving the room brings up even more energy, like I can't leave them or this and that. And so I would just like, plant my feet or like I said, get down on my knees and just sit there until, until I get a control of myself and, and then can actually move into interactions with other people or, 
um, or solving a situation or maybe not even needing to solve a situation. It's funny when we step away from something like that, we sometimes I realize that there's not even a solution or anything that needs to be done other than just to drop it. I love that, um, using your body to freeze in place. And what a great um, example of teaching your kids, if your kids are involved, how to do that themselves. To give them, you know, give themselves permission to take a time out. And, you know, it's kind of part of that principle of um, progressive muscle relaxation when you tense every bone in your body and you, you know, you close yourself down into a small shape, maybe take a knee or whatever, and then you release it, there's going to be a release of energy with an accompanying, even if it's only for a second, kind of a little firing of calm. And lots of times that's all you need to then, like you said, either proceed mindfully and effectively or put it away till later. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, the thing that I'm, I, I really feel an impulse to go towards just to uh, maybe it's to to soothe my own um, want to go in this direction. But uh, you you mentioned earlier this idea that you go through life and some things that you experience um, might not feel like anything to you. And then other people go through it. Um, the reference you used in, in the Coming Up for Air podcast was some people feel it at a 15 while you might feel it at a five. And um, the thing that comes up for me as we have this conversation about noticing the energy in our body and, and what the action urge is and coping ahead. And you, that's powerful for me right now. But if I hear this conversation three or four years ago for me, it, none of that matters to me because all I feel is anger and, and the impulse to do something. And I don't really understand what's going on. So, so what, where, what is like foundational here for people who, maybe haven't brought up been brought up in a culture or a family or society that um that that cultivates emotional intelligence and the understanding that we're having these impulses in our body um, and then you know being able to read those at some point where do you start if people don't understand that we start with psychoeducation honestly that that's the entry point um is explaining the biosocial model of how this works and normalizing the fact that these, whoever it is is not broken, right? They're just wired differently. Some people are prone to react in a more intense um, and out of the ordinary manner, especially in emotional situations, and even more often around um, family, friends, and, and romantic relationships. We think that people who have that different wiring react more quickly than everybody else. They go up higher than the norm. Then they stay up longer. And when they do start to return to baseline, it takes them even longer. My guess is when people are um, experiencing difficulties like um, addictions of any, of any given time, they, they experience something like this as well as a result of the addiction or as a result of trying to be in whatever recovery looks like to them. Um, and what it, what it means to me is their reality is markedly different from that of the rest of the population. And the rest of the population is not giving them credit for that. It's kind of like, well, you got to pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it out. Um, 
would that it were that easy. How do you how do you assess that when when somebody comes to you and they ask uh, to work with you or for you to work with them? How do you assess what their baseline is and how quickly they return to it upon or I guess coming from a, a heightened uh, state of tension? There there are some um, there are some screens. There's a BSL twenty three um, among others, but they're very subjective. Uh, because we can't, you know, we, no one can afford to go in, nor do we want that exposure to PET scans, although research has been done that way. Um, a lot of this is subjective and knowing what questions to ask and then literally using psychoeducation to teach the person to be mindful of their experience in the moment when they're right there with you one tiny moment at a time and just practice and repeat, practice and repeat little micro moments until all of a sudden kind of the screen starts to clear and the light bulb comes on. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's like the whole idea of, uh, and it, it's an old adage, of course, but like teach a man to fish kind of thing. Like you give, you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day, you teach him to fish and you feed him for a life. But when you show a person uh, that they have the potential to take the reins um, or to release the reins, if in some cases, um, and shift their experience and in the, in the way that they're thinking about it, um, you really you open up a doorway for them to grab hold of the work that you're. I assume the work that you're bringing to them, and then start utilizing those tools in their life. Absolutely, it's, it gives them a life preserver, and it starts to combat the stigma, the shame. Um, you know, that weighs people down as they're, as they're trying to move through this. That, that gift of hope is critical. And then maintaining it, because it, this is a tough way to live, maintaining it, and, and the good news is you don't have to stay sensitive forever. You can kind of it, it build some emotional skin. Um, unfortunately, it takes repeated exposure over and over and over again, which isn't fun. Um, and it works, and it works a lot more quickly than you would imagine. People in groups will report even after a month, um, sometimes even just the first day when they go home, that things are better than they were the day before. They may not be able to sustain it, but in that moment, they were able to be successful. That gives a great sense of mastery. <clears throat> Lisa, in your um, – yeah. No, so as a part of DBT, uh, mindfulness is, is a major component of that. Um, within that subset of mindfulness, obviously meditation has taken a strong foothold, especially in the Western culture. How much or if any of what you guide your, your, your patients or people who work with you on focuses on meditation, any, any sort of meditation, or is it more of you know, an element of self-awareness that they understand what they're feeling and why? that I um, work with clients, it's going to be kind of pre-meditation. It's, it's more about um, learning how to take hold of the mind, um, be aware of what it's doing, take hold of the body, and a lot of people don't want to be aware of their body. Notice what's going on with that um, and be able to describe that kind of sensory experience factually. And we practice that over and over and over again under an infinite number of situations that I create um, during the group 
so that, you know, becomes like a workout in the gym. Every time you pull your mind back, you're, um, you're getting that resistance that you would use with weights in a gym. So over time, over a two-hour class, what we're going to see is that, that that client has practiced pulling the mind back numerous times and started to build some new strength and maybe an alternate uh, neural pathway that they'll be able to rely on moving forward. Many of them will start their own mindfulness practices. Um, we encourage that as people get better and better at it. I don't specifically teach that in the skills group, but we try to refer them to people, whether it be through yoga, whether it be through, you know, a, a Buddhist um, situation, whether there are, well, I think, Ernie, you're a, you're a skilled mindfulness coach. I was about um, to say local podcast. Yeah, or a local podcast. Yeah, yeah been absolutely. Quite a few meditations. <laughs> um, and to try it, to try on everything and find what's the right fit for you because there's no rubber stamp. Um, I tell people it took me um, probably the first three years that I was even aware of all this stuff to be willing to do a seated mindfulness practice that lasted more than three minutes. <laughs> um, and, and over time, over years, literally years, I've grown into what for me is something like meditation. Um, I don't know if it's meditation by everyone's definition, but it works for me. And that's important. I mean, that that really is uh, to be able to look inward and, and, like you said, do those reps uh, to not necessarily clear your mind of thought, but recognize when you're having them. Um, so many of the conversations, Ernie, that you and I have come back to the practice of meditation, whether it's paying attention in a conversation, um, not having a conversation based on, you know, thinking about what you're going to respond with, but genuinely listening, um, or just even, you know, as you're going through everyday life, being mindful of every step you take, every movement you make, it's, it's hugely important to have that practice. Um, Lisa, you, uh, a little while ago talked a little bit about, uh, when we were talking about, uh, family and, and the holidays and, uh, you mentioned this in the, in the, in the podcast that we listened to as well. Um, the difference between distraction and, um, I guess, uh, oh shoot, what's the word? When you, you, from you, you want to, when you want to distract yourself from a, a, you know, a a circumstance that uh, you feel as if you're triggered in. And I guess my, my question to you is, you know, how do you work with somebody so they don't create distractions that can become destructive? And you mentioned specifically you're eating unhealthy food, but unfortunately, you know, that can probably create a negative feedback loop where, you know, if you're eating unhealthy food to distract yourself, you know, then you're putting on weight, which then again leads to unhealthy habits, which will then again lead to, um, you know, uncomfortable mindsets. So how do you make sure that any distractions that uh, somebody you work with do do not become destructive? Um, A couple of things. First of all, um, when we talk about distraction, we talk about it as a crisis survival skill. And it's used only in crisis situations, which are, you know, crises don't go on forever. They're very brief. They're very short-term, right? And we use them only then when it's a last resort to prevent us from making things worse. So the client has to identify, you know, are there 
unhealthy distractions that they are currently using as a coping tool to get through every situation. And that tends to be what we as humans like to do. Human beings want to avoid pain. That, that's natural. And we're very good at finding ways to do that. When we're not living intentionally, that can become kind of a habitual path that we are very unaware that we're doing, but we're going down that path on autopilot. So learning how to kind of recognize that there's a choice point where we can turn our mind toward the valued pathway, again, comes back to, to being able to be mindful in that moment. For many of our clients, trauma has been a huge um, part of their lives. And something like meditation is very uncomfortable, especially early on, for people who've experienced trauma. Um, oftentimes, it's not a safe place yet for them to go. We also have clients who suffer from eating disorders. Um, so we want to be very, very careful about doing and saying things or encouraging um, judgments or negative connotations on things like body shape and weight. So we want to, we tend to, and I think I use the word healthy, um, and that was a mistake on my part. What I really want to do is focus on value. What is, what do I value? What is my purpose? Mm. And is this behavior that I notice I'm engaging in keeping me on my valued pathway or is it pulling me off track? Again, it, it's the work that I do is mindfulness in its most simple form. Yeah. Wow. That, that, that idea of having a tether to your, your value or your per, your purpose, like what you're intending to do in your life. Um, most recently, that's been a, a useful tool for me. I wonder if that's an effort that you make with people in these classes that sounds like you're holding in, <clears throat> in your one-on-one -on -one coaching work. Um, if you, if you help people, you know, suss out their purpose and, and what, the, if you do, what does that process you know, entail? We, I use, um, personally, the University of Pennsylvania Positive Psychology, um, Authentic Happiness website. There is a, an extensive, I think it's 240 question, um, assessment there, um, that we use to, um, start our assessment. We also use a detailed, um, experience that's based on the values card sort, which is available online, but I've tweaked that so that it gives a little bit more information than, than just what's on the site. We kind of put those core um, character strengths that are assessed in the authentic happiness um, scale, and we match those strengths with the things that are of most value to that individual at this time in their life, knowing that my clients who are sensitive or who maybe have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder oftentimes don't have a sense of who they are we begin to identify in this moment, who am I as a person? I'm Susan. I have these strengths of character, and this is what's important to me. It gives us a launch pad where we can take off then and figure out moment to moment what what is going to work for them, but not only that, how they can have more happiness and less suffering. Kind of a roadmap. Yeah, wow. You know, what I loved most about that is when you – you, when you find somebody's uh, core characteristics from this assessment, 
that you attach them to things that are happening in their life right now. Uh, for me, the idea that I have around purpose or that I've had around purpose is, is the big malfunction that I would uh, come against when I was considering what my purpose in life was, was that it was this eternal thing. And uh, it made more uh. sense to me as I shifted it to, to the idea of what's most purposeful now in my life. And, and then knowing that that can shift and then maybe, maybe an eternal purpose emerges, but maybe not being more purposeful now is, is really the intention behind the, some of the work you're doing. And, and right. This, I love what you said because eternity is big and ongoing. So we can't be there now. What we're doing in this moment is building or living that eternal purpose. Yeah. And so when you, as you're, uh-huh. as you're helping, and Lisa, you and I have had many conversations about purpose, and it's uh, really something that I, I enjoy talking about with you. But when we, when you help determine somebody's purpose, you know, we tend to all be our own worst enemies. How do you help somebody pursue that? Or help, how do you help somebody get out of their own way when it comes to getting to a point where they feel comfortable approaching that purpose? Well, you know what? We as coaches, right, and all of us, all of us are coaches. Um, holding space for a person and building a relationship with them is, is always step number one. And we can move from there into genuine interest into what what a person loves to talk about. What are the pain points for the person? What are their hopes and dreams? Right. And as we get to know them with genuine interest um, and look at that just by our response to them and allowing them um, to be validated for being themselves and being in our presence, kind of heart to heart or, you know, self to self, we start to establish, I think Ernie had said, a, a, um, a connection. There's a connection. It's, we're grounded. We have a rope around our, our waist and my heart is tied to yours and I'm anchored in this minute. My anchor is around my waist and it's got me anchored in this moment. And as we build those, people start to develop a sense of security. And once we start to have that sense of security, it's less scary to consider something new. Yet we have to be mindful of the fact that people have constructed their belief about how things work and how the world um is supposed to be in quotation marks and if we shape that foundation too quickly or too sharply that can topple the whole tower we need to to go gently and take time these things are not um necessarily happening rapidly you know that that idea of safety really um, strikes for me you know there are people working on every level to develop something in their life and we could say that um, one pursuit is, is higher or, or, or larger or more valuable than another pursuit. Um, but really, whether it's, it's somebody wanting to, you know, get out of their parents' home or somebody, you know, uh, leaving a, a multi-million dollar business to start a new career endeavor, it, it seems like um, the, the willingness to move forward is, is a feeling of safety, whether that's safety within... Uh, another person like you might create, uh, you and I and, and Trey might create for people that we work with, um, feeling safety, that tether to safety when another person that you can trust, 
or knowing that you can create safety in your body and the way that your emotions are affecting you and the energy is coming up. Those are just a, a couple examples that come to mind for me. But would you say that that might be a def- defining factor in, in people moving forward is feeling that security or that safety? Absolutely. That, that strong attachment, um, in my opinion, is critical before we, before we can look for, for movement. And then, you know, the, the, you mentioned willingness, and I think that, that's important too, right? Because my level of willingness is going to vary moment to moment. So how do we, how do we sustain willingness? Those are, those are things that people don't necessarily pop out of the womb knowing. And unless somebody teaches you recipes to try and to follow, you know, these are all life skills. Um, we can't assume that, that everybody has them. Sometimes we have somebody has to sort of take us by the hand and lead us through so we, so we can figure it out. And the other thing, I can't tell anyone their purpose, right? Um, they are going to have to figure that out for themselves, and lots of times they don't know. It's really important to, to let them know it's okay. It will come, right? We, sometimes it, it takes longer than you would think. Yeah. Could you go more into the idea of sustaining willingness? <clears throat> the first thing I think of is, is, is motivation, right? A lot of people, uh, especially nowadays, it feels like, uh, believe that motivation, uh, is what, is what moves you forward, be motivated towards something, but it doesn't really feel like it encompasses the idea of willingness. And then I'm also interested in, in how a person sustains willingness and if that's a part of your work. Yeah, we, we talk about willingness as a skill, um, and we contrast it kind of as a, as an emotion state, so I can be in a state of willingness or in a state of willfulness. Um, and again, we're back to mindfulness. Step one is being able to identify, oh, look, well, willingness is here today. I'm all over this. Uh-oh, that just switched. No longer willing. Um, and to accept that without judgment, to be aware that this ebbs and flows in life. And then from there, we're going to start to look at, huh, I wonder what, made it more likely that day that you were able to be willing at three o'clock for two hours and what shifted, what got in the way, what, what induced willfulness to come in. So we start to look at chains of events. Um, and again, right, it's mindfulness along, along the path, coming back and, and really being attentive to what was my thought in that moment? What was my emotion, my physical sensation? Um, what did I notice in my in my stomach? Uh, oh, okay. And then we start to, to make connections. I know. Certainly like, we have vulnerable. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. Oh, you're fine. I, I just had a, a thought that there are vulnerabilities, though, right, that we all have, and that they could be unique to most of us. I, I think all humans being hungry and tired, um, you know, some of the negative emotion states make us more vulnerable. From being rushed is deadly for me. Mm-hmm. Um, me too. <laughs> yeah. So I think knowing what our vulnerability is too is is critical to maintaining willingness. Mm. Certainly, and I know, like I'm sure, so many people. There are days where I feel like I could take over the world, and you know, I, I can listen to music driving down the road, and I just I feel like a, like a million dollars. And there are other times where I just feel like. Uh, everything that I've done, you know, is, is worthless. Um, it, it's such a, um, a, a, a fine 
line to walk. And, you know, along the lines of what you said, it, it there are a million different variables that go into that. I, I've done my best over the last few months to track, you know, the things that lead me to a certain state of mind or a certain state of uh, feeling in my body. And while there's, there's no, there's certainly no, um, you know, secret code to unlock that feeling. I, I can say with an, with a, a certain degree of uh, confidence that at least for myself, you know, maintaining a healthy lifestyle, both in regard to sleep, diet, exercise, those certain things help me maximize, um, you know, that 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 state of willingness, will, willfulness. Um, and so I am just I'm curious if you have learned of any other or any. Uh, I don't, I hesitate to use the word secrets, but uh, any hacks or whatever you want to call it uh, that help people maintain that or optimize or maximize that. What I, what I do for myself and what I, what I teach people, and it ends up looking a little bit different depending on the individual, um, is first to be aware of vulnerabilities and take responsibility, right, which is living with intent. Um, and that reminds me of what you've been doing for the last couple of months, really, you know, being very dedicated to this, very being very committed to that. And then at the, the next kind of intersection is noticing that there is a choice point. And I think much like there's an exercise to increase your mindfulness, there's, there's kind of an exercise of turning the mind at that choice point toward what we value. Um, and for me, it's been cumulative. As I have deliberately noticed that willfulness just stepped up, and I kind of take my head between my two hands and deliberately turn it to my valued pathway, um, that tends to increase willingness. <clears throat> the other thing that I teach is when we are unwilling, we tend to assume a very tight posture. It tends to be... Um, you know, kind of bringing your arms in closer to your chest, maybe leaning forward, tenseness in the shoulders and the thighs. So by opening our posture and putting, um, putting our hands open on our thighs or stretching our arm out over the back of a chair, extending our legs instead of crossing them, that, that initiates a social safety signal that communicates to me I'm okay, because lots of times willfulness has come up when I start to have a sense that something's wrong. I may not be in danger, but there's this little chemical message that I'm getting that danger is present. And when I change my posture to one of openness and willingness instead of defensiveness, it tends to send the opposite chemical signal to my brain that, okay, this is all right. And what I notice is willingness then comes back. I think it's a skill that we have to learn and practice to be able to deliberately move between emotion mind, right, and reasonable mind, or between willingness and willfulness. The, the whole deal is, can I do this on purpose when I want to? Well, we can't. nobody can every second, but we can more often and more often than then. We can more often, even to the extent of most of the time. Yeah, and I, I do, I, I love hearing all that from, uh, you know, the idea of um, noticing your blind spots, your vulnerabilities, and, uh, and, then, and then from there, giving yourself the element of choice, because when I'm aware of something, then I can choose 
even, you know, it, when these things are present, I can choose to do the things that would relax my body or, or get me, you know, out of the situation that, that is making me feel vulnerable and unsafe. Um, and I guess I want to say also here that the, using the word unsafe can sound so, uh, like violent to it. Like there's a, on the, if you're unsafe, there's a violence to it, but it's simply just like the feeling of unsafe, right? Getting away from, um, the insecurity or whatever's, you know, vulnerable in that moment. It doesn't have to necessarily be literal, um, fear for your life, but our, but our bodies think it is. And then, you know, once we start to get a handle on that awareness, we get to choose, you know, how to, how to handle that. And, and one thing I really want to point out for people listening, um, is in my life, the value of having other people, um, through which I gain those awarenesses, because it's, it's one thing to journal, journal every day. And it's one thing to watch videos and read books every day, but then to actually have these conversations with people that you trust, your friends uh, who are on the same path or, or hiring a coach or having a therapist, um, or a group of people, um, you know, if you're in a, in a group program, like I'm in a men's group this year and, and, and seeing my vulnerabilities amongst 54 powerful men, um, on, on varying success levels, uh, you know, these things are drawn out and then you have space to actually talk about them. That's safe. So it's like, oh, boom, here's my vulnerability. And, um, you know, I guess I use the metaphor of scuba diving. Sometimes, you know, the coach or this other person kind of holds the, the rope as you, as you, start to scuba dive into whatever is happening and then they can also pull you back up and then once you're at the surface they're like okay look at what we just found and you can work through that and honestly in my life uh, it's been exponential when I when I took the step from you know putting this all on my own back and then actually trusting and, and, and surrendering it in some ways to to the container of somebody else that I that I trust that's awesome and I think one, I think that go ahead. I was just going to uh, reiterate a point that we've made several times. You know, it's that 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 network or that that foundational group of people with whom you surround yourself. You know, the the five people who you spend the most time with, you you end up becoming the average of those. And so you have to ask yourself: Are you wanting to spend time with people who? are focusing all their time and attention on going out to bars and drinking and partying, or do you want to spend your time and your devotion with people who are actively trying to better themselves, who are trying to become mindful so they can in turn improve the lives of others around them? Um, it's, it's a very powerful thought exercise and, you know, one that allows you to grow as a person. Yeah, those, it's literally focusing, is this my valued pathway? Or is it not? And that being said, you know, I have quite a few clients who are tremendously committed to walking the road that is opposite their valued pathway, right? Mm. Unwillingness is there more, mm. more often than willingness. Step one is to know that that's a choice and that you're cho choosing it. And then to understand that there's a reason why, and this has somehow worked for you over years, and we're not going to judge that. What we're going to do is work together to, you know, increase the chances that you'll be able to make a turn to your value pathway more often than you have in the past. It's still progress if you're even considering it. So we really want people to be kind to themselves and to understand that, you know, this all takes place over time 
and that one person is not better or worse than another. It's simply where I am in this given moment. Um, and the other thing that just made so much sense when what you guys were saying is, you know, I think those attachments that are made between the self of each of you and then the selves of the people in your men's group, um, that creates a safety net. I, that, that to me seems critical to having a life where you can not only flourish yourself, but give back to other people. Mm. And it requires safety to do that. Yeah. The safer you feel, the deeper you can go with things for sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, another thing came up as you spoke about the people that you work with who are, um, not living their valued path, although you guys are meeting, I imagine, and, and consistently bringing up the these uh, vulnerabilities and the choice that they have, they they leave that session and maybe they're you know good for a few hours or good for a few days and moving in the direction that they believe is the way they want to go, and then they're back into that place where um, they're making the decisions or or the unconscious habits that um, are detrimental to to themselves and to their lives that they want to create. Uh, the other thought that I have there is, um, is understanding. And I wonder if you use this at all in your work is understanding that those habits or those, um, choices or, or whatever you want to call them, that those have a value too. And, and that we can, uh, look at, at that, the, you know, if, if I am, uh, if I am being, defiant to the structures that I set in my life, for instance, this is me speaking from personal experience, I might set a structure in my life. And there's a part of me that's super rebellious. And that wants to like, you know, three or four days or weeks go by. And I'm like, ah, screw that, man, I'm, I'm, you can't hold me down, like, F the man, whatever it is. Um, you know, that it's just that that's the feeling that's coming through me. And, I, and I'm willing to kind of just throw things away in it, in a moment's notice. And, uh, and that's not part of my valued path uh, to slow down the world, to lead men and women into, you know, loving themselves and loving the world in the best way possible. It's not part of that path necessarily, but something about that process holds value to me, you know, whether it's me wanting to feel more independent or, you know, uh, to feel like the lone wolf. I don't know. That's all the same thing, essentially. Um, but understanding that those those other pathways that we're consistently taking that aren't necessarily the right thing for us, those have some sort of value. And then there's a way to create that in our, towards our value path, towards, you know, the safety of what we're wanting to create moving forward. Yeah. And you just hit on the whole idea of transformation because when, you know, when rebel Ernie shows up, um, he has a function, he has a job to do. My guess is he's protecting you for, from some unwanted, reality in the in the environment or in your life at that time and we don't we we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. that part of you has probably allowed you to make it to this point today in some way even though now he's not quite needed in the same way that he used to be um we talk about alternate rebellion in, in DBT, it, it's a way to rebel without making things worse. Um, and the clients are awesome about thinking up crazy creative ways to do that. Um, I love that. To actually, whether it comes from dyeing your hair a different <laughs> color or, you know, it, there are so many different things. But it's a, again, it's 
all comes down to mindfulness. Mm, I love it. Yeah. You know, something you uh, mentioned in the, uh, again, I'm referencing the other podcast here, uh, but it was, it was excellent and full of, of value and, and plenty for us to really dive into your work. And uh, you mentioned a bit about mindfulness, uh, sharing mindfulness with young people. I think you mentioned your grandchildren. I can't remember exactly, um, but like blowing on the piece of pizza. Uh, oh, right. Um, and, and and I'm I'm listening to this and and what I was yearning for. I have two young children, of course. I've mentioned that, but what I was yearning for, and as I listened to it, was to hear more about that because, um, the, being a parent, so many things can come up. <clears throat> uh, the judgments we make of ourselves, the judgments we project on our children, our beliefs about the world, and then and then just wanting to show up with love, you know. And and in the midst of that, uh, I'm here trying to just help them work their way through the world. And, uh, you know, I, I could personally use more structure around the way I invite mindfulness to my young, rambunctious children. And, and the first way I do that is simply by cultivating it in myself and, and learning all of the ways that I'm vulnerable and, <clears throat> and ways to manage that within my own body. Um, and then I'm, I'm just wondering, are there other ways uh, through that that you notice or that you've used or you offer to people? And there's some great resources out there. A lot of the elementary schools are um, including mindful moments and mindful movement within the, the school day for the kids. Um, when I, my thing was, you know, one of those things I wished I had known when I was raising my kids was to deliberately and intentionally teach my children how to soothe themselves when they're undone. And that was something that I was able to teach my daughter, and she and I were able to, to teach my granddaughter. And that has been amazing to watch um, Haley actually do that. Um, it, we did things like, you know, pretending you were holding pizza in, in your hand and taking a deep breath and then blowing on the pizza to cool it off. But we also did silly things like sitting let's sit like a frog and be really, really quiet. Don't move anything except your eyes. Now watch for that fly. Mm. And when I say buzz, stick out your tongue and grab that fly. <laughs> and, you know, we would play these goofy, goofy games. But in practicing that, right, that was a mindfulness practice of concentrating on one thing in that moment, not whatever it is that's getting you undone, right, and, and transforming that moment it, it doesn't work though if you don't in my well in my experience it doesn't work unless you practice it when you don't need it and then it's much easier to engage them when they do need it there are tons of great books um available and and really good programs on youtube and um in the school in the various school districts i'm not sure exactly what the ones in my school district are called, but I know they're using them, even though they're calling them by another name. Mm. Could you just off the top of your head, say two of those resources, maybe one book and one YouTube or, or two books or whatever it might be, anything that comes to mind for myself yeah. and other people? Um, let me think for a second. Sure. Or it's something we could also post in the show notes after you know, after you've had some time to consider those. Yeah, if I don't think about it, it'll pop right into my mind. Of yeah, course, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's, yeah. A, there's a great um, series that on YouTube that is wonderful. Um, I'm going to look it up. It'll be right here on my phone. 
And then I, I was going to ask as well what uh, may seem like the opposite end of the spectrum, but for all of us who have been in the environment, uh, we know that dealing with coworkers and even superior, superior, superiors in, in uh, a corporate environment can be as stressful as dealing with, with toddlers. And so I, I, say, I say that uh, semi- It's so true. I, I say that semi-jokingly, but so I mean, it, is, it's a very, it can be a very stressful and um, defeating environment. And so when it comes to mindfulness in the workplace, I mean, do you, you may not be able to get a, a C-level executive uh, to hold out their hand and blow on it, but I mean, there <laughs> are certainly tools. That, there are certainly tools that can be utilized within that environment to, you know, create a more mindful and more certainly more understanding um, and hopefully more welcoming atmosphere uh, for you know the employees. And so, do you have any recommendations uh, based on that sort of um, scenario? I mean, certainly paced breathing and, um, you know, exercises like that, that where you're exchanging the carbon dioxide um, for oxygen in your respiratory system um, by having a, a longer exhale than your inhale, yet staying within a comfortable breathing pattern. Um, sustaining that for two minutes or more can definitely bring down arousal. Um, again, mindfulness, being aware in the moment of what you're experiencing, remembering that you can't control anyone else, but that you can choose how you respond. All, all of those things are um, certainly certainly useful in a corporate um, setting. Absolutely. And Lisa, you and I'm I... Thinking, go ahead. I was just I think the... Um, if I'm right, the Cosmic Kids Den mm. is one of the resources for children. The yoga one. Yeah, cosmic and kids. Then they have like um, yoga where they, where they act like there's animals. a couple ones were in the. Well, I will get them to you, the sure. ones that I know, but there's some really good ones out there. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I did want to mention, uh, you and I have spoken briefly about this, uh, you know, in regard to some of our frustrations is that, you know, mindfulness and especially meditation, uh, they still carry a certain stigma with them, especially in Western culture. Uh, fortunately, it does seem like that stigma is starting to evaporate, um, especially, you know, along uh, uh, the, the West Coast with California, Silicon Valley and all of that. Uh, what would you say to, you know, a company or a corporate atmosphere who wants to instill some sort of daily mindfulness practice or, you know, mindfulness or meditation room. Uh, obviously, there are, are benefits to that. I mean, how, I guess, how would you nudge them along or, you know, what, 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 even what benefits could they see, you know, to their bottom line or just to the happiness and well-being of their, of their employees? Great question. I mean, off the, off the top of my head, the research is there, right? And it's been replicated multiple times over that a mindfulness practice helps you increase emotion regulation. It decreases distraction and rumination. You have increased activity in um, brain regions that are associated with positive emotions. Um, there's a decrease in anger and emotional irritability. I know there's increase in immune function, and there's a definite correlation um, that shows that it decreases depression and anxiety. So, I mean, that that's definitive, assuming that you engage in the practice. My, mindfulness is powerful. Then there's the whole field of positive psychology, um, where, again, the databases are immense and the research is profound. Um, 
they work quite a bit in corporate America um, and in those situations. And they um, that's a great place to look for corroborating studies um, that may be helpful to convince a um, you know a C-suite CEO that this is something that requires some attention. That's wonderful. That's 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 great advice. Yeah. So Lisa, I have a question about you. Um, now that we've kind of covered uh, the work that you do, and 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 I imagine that you um, have an uh, you know a heightened level of understanding of these these tools that you're giving to people and you use them in your life. Of course, you mentioned the moment with your husband and and utilizing your awareness there. Um, with for me, you know, my my focus in life and growth continues to shift based upon what I'm experiencing and what I've learned uh, from simply, you know, waking up early to then figuring out how to implement certain habits. And then, you know, at one point I wanted to learn how to communicate better, which turned into how to listen better. Um, just various levels of, of learning that we could be focused on. I'm, I'm wondering for you and your experience now, what the leading edge of your personal development in life is for you. Yeah. Yeah. For, for myself, um, I'm really focused in two areas right now. One of which, um, has to do with giving back. I'm 65, right? Um, and I have found extreme purpose in finding ways to empower people with borderline personality disorder to move from being coaches or being clients into being coaches. And what I have learned is that to do that, I have to increase my own mindfulness practice. I, that was something that had become very habitual and very routine. Um, I noticed a difference up until about a month ago um, every day when I, when I did it and that it was a better start to the day and then I had better outcomes, what I finally realized is I was stuck. And I'm trying now to learn how to kind of crack open that egg and see a much broader picture of what can be. And what I've realized as I'm doing that is I'm flooded every day with ideas and creativity and excitement and very much aware of the stigma and the things that are holding back people that have so much to give. And that gives me the energy to want to take off and go for another 20 years. Right. Um, and it just, it's been really nice. This is maybe where you can influence me, um, Ernie, a whole bunch. I don't know how to take it to the next step though. Yeah. So what I think you're saying is you've, and I could be off here, um, but you've had this practice of mindfulness that you've implemented day to day um, for you. And then you're now bringing it into a place where you're implementing it um, in a way that you're you're focusing your mindfulness practice on on something bigger than you. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And, and, and I don't know how I landed there, except it came from a place of yearning and I don't know how to grow it. In what way? Feels. Um, it feels like I am missing a skill or missing a, a piece of it. Like I'm looking for something that's going to help, help me kind of complete that process. Wow. What, so can I, and maybe this isn't the place like in a, a public platform to ask you this, this next 
thing that's emerging through you, but is there a, a specific picture of what, what this looks like, you giving back at this larger scale? Um, yeah, creating opportunities for people who don't have their shit together <laughs> to help other people because I don't believe that you have to have your shit together to help anybody else. Mm. And I also feel that people can make a living out of doing that and and find their purpose and... I feel very drawn to that as a result of my morning meditation. Something like a crack appeared and then this new vista opened up. Oh, man, that's, that sounds amazing. I was having this thought, uh, I think, as I drove up here today of, uh, of the idea that came to mind was uh, being able to bridge um, our child and our elder you know, and, and, and then also being able to experience other people in their child and in their elder. Um, and so that we're not making this judgment of, you know, I can only do so much for somebody because this is the way I feel, but actually knowing that I can um, impact somebody's life, even if I don't feel like my life is put together. And then also when you're experiencing people, if you if you're experiencing both their child and their elder, you might feel their pain, but then also know that there's something for you to learn from them at the same time. And so you, you like feeling this, this opening of, of how do I, how do I hone in for that person who would look at me and say, I don't have my shit together. Um, how, and how we would get somebody like that in the world, um, who doesn't believe themselves to be capable of, of making an impact to uh, inherently make an impact, just naturally make an impact in the world. That that's definitely inspiring as I hear it and makes me want to go for another 20 years on, on that, you know, on that little. Yeah. There's, there's something, but and the other pieces, and you've probably found this too, is the stuff that we talked about today. I've only figured it out because of a little bit of education, but mostly a ton of self to self contact with other people, right? With all the people that have come into my life through, groups or through individual coaching, um, you know, other jobs that I've had. So just exactly what you're saying is I wouldn't have this confidence or sense of knowing what I know had it not been for them. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, you know, it's interesting to even consider the idea of having our, our shit together. Um, Trey, you might feel the same way, but like as soon as, and I'm sure Lisa, you, you maybe experienced this as well. Um, but I'll leave that to you guys. Uh, it, as soon as we gather all of the, the shit that we've been searching for, it's like we have, we're on a whole different platform of, of trying to gather more shit uh, and, and get it together. So it's definitely an interesting concept. Of, <laughs> and the goal is not to roll in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what I'm, what I'm hearing is that, you know, you learn what you, you, you strive and strive and strive to learn and accomplish one goal, but that as you accomplish that goal, more and more goals arise within you, more and more questions. And you can have as many answers as you want, but there's always going to be ex exponential number of questions. So if we can get to a point where we realize we're never going to know anything and everything that, or everything in regard to our purpose is always going to be a lifelong journey. I think that's a, a good place to be. I mean, we, we, in that regard, we're never going to have our shit together, but at least we can be at a point where we're proud to be pursuing our purpose because we know that we are on that purpose driven path. Oh, I like that. It's a lifelong journey. 
It is. And there, and it will always be there. It will. <laughs> the goal is not to produce more than you need to. Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Lisa, I've got two more questions for you. And if, if Ernie has any more, he's welcome to, to jump in. Um, first and foremost, anybody who may be listening, who may think that they could receive value from your offerings. What what does somebody ask themselves or what what does somebody have to feel? What does somebody have to think that they may feel like they're a good fit for you? Um, you know what? Probably five or six times a day, um, I'll get a phone call or an email or a text with somebody just asking, what is DBT? You know, I don't know if this is for me. Or I, I found this online about borderline personality disorder. And I think those, those conversations, which, you know, may lead to my referring them to some other resource in the community or, you know, maybe we'll set up something for them to come in and talk. Um, really, I like to be a resource to people, kind of a, a clearinghouse. Um, and that's probably one of the biggest um, one of the biggest functions of what I do that keeps me going is being able to connect people to care, to quality evidence-based care. That can look a lot of different ways, whether it's nutrition, whether it's movement, whether it's um, meditation and mindfulness, whether it's therapy, whether it's rock climbing, you name it, right? I appreciate you throwing that last one in there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so if, if they feel as if if they if they feel drawn toward reaching out to you, what is the best way to connect with you? Um, easiest way is through my email, which is Lisa Bond, B-O-N-D-R-N, at Gmail. And my website is Lisa Bond, D-B-T, Solutions. Um, and we'll put both those in the show notes. Oh, awesome. Thank yeah. you. And then last but not least... Um, I want to pull a page from Tim Ferriss, um, kind of change it up a little bit. But what I, I'm curious to know, what is the single most, and it can be in relation to your industry or it can be f- uh, fiction, it can be anything you want. What is the single most influential or life-changing book you've ever read? Oh, man. Um, huh, that's a great that's a great question. There's so many. Um, I read so many textbooks. Um Honestly, I think I can't give you a book, but the body of literature about attachment theory, okay. I think, has changed my entire view of um, of how we as humans relate to each other. Attachment theory. Attachment theory and inter- inter- uh, internal family systems work. Those, those, that in the area of positive psychology has impacted my worldview tremendously. That's wonderful. I will. And I'm a little boring. I read textbooks. I love it. I love it. I, I will certainly look into that. Um, well, Lisa, <laughs> seriously, thank you so so much. Um, this is a a relationship that uh, I know both Ernie and I want to continue to cultivate, and uh, we've we've discussed some pretty cool things uh, offline that I'm hoping to be able to bring to the forefront at some point in the future. But uh, seriously, we we. First of all, genuinely thank you for experimenting in this with us. This is, like I said, this is our first <laughs> interview. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. I had fun. Actually, I wish I could spend more time hanging out with you guys. I um, I feel like there's there's like minds here. 
Agreed. And I'm going to trust you to edit this and make it uh, make it into something of use to someone somewhere, and that will be all good. It'll be beautiful. You know that it, without editing, I, I feel I feel so good about this conversation and just the feeling that you bring to it, and then the the safety uh, that I feel <laughs> to dive into your your knowledge. Like you are clearly an expert in what you're what you're giving to people. And then I also uh, want to acknowledge you for the the point in your life that you're at right now, you know, as you've been taking this to small groups, I imagine, and on an individual basis, and now feeling this pull to uh, to this, this, this small, like, glimpse of inspiration to creating something, uh, I want to say bigger, but that doesn't feel the right word, but, you know, deeper, something deeper. Um, from what you've learned. So I want to acknowledge you for that, too. This has been amazing, so thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, guys. I feel better already. <laughs> good, good. Well, Lisa, again, thank you very, very much. Uh, if we don't talk before then, uh, we both hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday, and uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation sometime soon. Yeah, you and I will uh, touch base, I'm sure, right after uh, the holidays are over, if not before. That sounds great. Thank you again, Lisa. Take care. You're welcome. See ya. Bye. Bye, Ernie. Once again, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great uh, experience for us um, and a great first uh, interview episode, too. So, again, thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Ernie. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Uh, If you'd like to learn more about the Mosaic Life podcast, you can do so at onemosaic.life. That is O-N-E mosaic.life. Of course, you can find us on Instagram at onemosaiclife. And uh, if you have any burning thoughts uh, that you want to share with us, uh, you can email us at onemosaiclife at gmail.com. We are nothing if not consistent. Again, thank you all for joining us. We will be back next Sunday with our sixth conversation uh, that is surrounding lust, hatred, and ignorance um, and kind of my pursuit into Buddhism. And then to cap off the year... To bring us into 2020, Ernie will be releasing his sixth meditation. So stay tuned for that on Sunday, December 29th. And last but not least, for those interested, Ernie's big birthday is coming up on December 23rd. That is a Monday, so please feel free to reach out to him and wish him a happy one. I hope all of you have a wonderful week. Stay warm and be well. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.